We are now about to hear the second in our fascinating series of recordings of the Easter Rebels. Today you will hear the lost and recovered voice of Thomas McDonough, to be followed by a live studio discussion of what we have heard. This panel will be asked to react to the voice and the ideas just broadcast, and to respond to queries from the public on related teams. You can contact the station on 87 At this time, there are many treatments of the theme of the 1916 Rising, but none as dramatic as this series. We hope that you enjoy and benefit from our broadcast of Lost Easter Voices. Welcome, I'm Charlotte Tannen. We are about to listen to the second of these amazing recordings of the dead 1916 leaders. The recordings were brought back to Ireland after a hundred years to be handed over to the National Archives. We here at Near FM were fortunate to get to remaster the original delicate cylinders of the lost Easter voices. And now we get to broadcast these unique recordings of the executed 1916 rebels. We listened yesterday to the voice of Porrick Pierce. Now we listen to Thomas McDonough. Mr McDonough, as I explained, this device will record your words for posterity. I hope I'm not disturbing you with my visit. No, it's a relief. I was expecting my next visitors to be two armed guards. Uh, not for a while yet, I'm told. Uh, would you care to tell me what motivated you to become involved in this rising? Yes. Uh, what do I have to do exactly? Oh, it's very simple. Just sit near the cylinder as it rotates and speak as I pose the questions to you. Very well. Here? Yes, that's perfect. Now, let me set the scene. It is the early morning of the 3rd of May, and I'm in the cell of Mr. Thomas McDonough. Your lips are very dry, sir. Can you take a drink before we start? Uh, I've no water. I got bully beef some ten hours ago, and, and no water since then. Oh, dear. Can we continue? Yes. Were you born in Dublin, sir? No, I was born in Clockyard in Tipperary. Can you tell me about your early years? I was raised on the family farm. I was the fourth of nine children. Both of my parents were English, both were teachers, and neither held any political views. That sort of thing? Yes, uh, thank you, that sort of thing. Um, so, no political influence from your upbringing um, that would have led you to here? Oh, there, there were influences. My parents, as I noted, were teachers. I became a teacher. My mother vowed to give us the nearest equivalent to an English upbringing that she could. And two of my brothers joined the British Army, and she was very religious. I almost joined the priesthood. I see. Um, where did you teach? Well, initially at schools in Fermoy and Kilkenny, and then finally at Pierce's St. Enda School in Dublin. Ah, I see. Influences again. Yes, I was finding my feet. I began teaching in University College Dublin, and around then I joined the Gaelic League. And I went from being non-political to become an ardent nationalist with a love of the Irish language central to my life. Very similar path taken by Pierce. Yes, but my thinking wasn't all derivative. I then went through an intense creative period. I wrote prose, scholarly analysis, poetry and drama. W.B. Yeats was my mentor and my inspiration. Perhaps I became a man of too many parts. Perhaps you were still trying to find yourself. It was difficult. At times I was happy to be a recluse. At other times I was the centre of artistic Dublin. Why, I even tried to get Pat, Patrick Pierce, to indulge in this social life in Dublin. But he was hopeless. How so? I recall one evening after a meeting, I somehow managed to get him to come into a music hall, and I remarked on the physical attractiveness of the young ladies on stage. Begad, Pat, I said, isn't that a fine leg? 
Like the limb of an angel, he agreed. <laughs> he was hopeless. His thoughts were elsewhere, I'd imagine. So, did he lure you into the rebellion? Eventually, I became increasingly involved in Republican activity, joining the IRB. The IRB? The Irish Republican Brotherhood. And with that, I found a new direction and purpose to my life. I rose through the ranks to eventually become Commandant of the Dublin Brigade and Director General of Training. You were finding direction and purpose? Exactly, but as my physical force activity grew, my creative work fell. The influence of Pierce is palpable. I, also that of Joseph Plunkett, we believed that only by physical force could Ireland be freed. There was also popular support for this Home Rule Act. How did your IRB feel about that? Ah, uh, Redmond. We were watching to see how he'd fare. All the newspapers are lauding him. He'd become a nationalist hero, almost as popular as Parnell. But we could see that Asquith was just using him. I was becoming part of the physical force movement. Yet my final involvement in planning the actual rising was a last-minute decision, you know. Why so? Not a decision by me. I was invited to become a member of the IRB Military Council only a few weeks ago, in early April, when plans for the insurrection were almost complete. My inclusion was to improve communications with Owen McNeil, my colleague at UCD, who was the volunteer chief of staff. He was proving difficult. Surely he should have been at the heart of such plan. McNeil did not feel that Rising was justified at this time. It was hoped that I could persuade him otherwise. Without joining the military council, you might not be here tonight. How do you feel about that? Satisfied. I'm right where I want to be. You were pleased knowing that this Rising was about to happen? I was dangerously excitable. I could not help but hint it to my men. Such indiscretion appalled both Clark and McDermott. I don't know these people. Well, if you're visiting the condemned men, then you'll surely meet them. Anyway, my men needed to be prepared. Many would have had to put their affairs in order. We knew that there were informers in the ranks, so I was discreet, while becoming increasingly explicit. Your chief of staff, McNeil, it felt you to persuade him to agree. Were you successful? No, I failed. He was determined to cancel the planned manoeuvres for Easter Sunday, which were a cover for the rising. What happened then? That was a difficult moment for me. I liked McNeil. He was a man of integrity. The military council arguments were ineffective in altering his mind. I called to see him three times over that failed weekend at his house in Rathgar. It became heated, and I recall shouting at him that his countermand order might not be obeyed. He told me that Pierce had made the same claim on Friday. I left him with a final word of advice saying that the volunteers of the country have a greater faith and confidence in Pierce than they did in him. Broad times. Aye, God help the poor man. He must live with the consequences of his actions. So, how did the rising happen? Once McNeil began countermanding the manoeuvres, the military council met in emergency session on Easter Sunday morning in Liberty Hall and decided to proceed with the plan on Monday. Word got out, but confusion reigned. We rose anyway. So... To the actual rising, what did you do? Where were you located? I was the one to issue the mobilisation orders on Easter Monday morning to the entire Dublin Brigade. Our day had dawned. Our insurrection was in play. I rose early, shaved, and donned my uniform <coughs> of a volunteer commandant. We were an army in uniform facing the enemy forces. From Stephen's Green, I led my force to Jacob's factory, which was 
occupied a dominant position. They could not march down from Portobello military barracks to seize the GPO. They huddled in doorways and we picked them off. Your position was solid, militarily. Once we were secure, I set my men to knocking holes in adjoining walls as Connolly had advised. This gave us routes for communication and retreat if necessary, and all invisible to enemy eyes. Connolly advised that a pickaxe was as important as a rifle in urban warfare. Finally, I addressed the men, informing them that if we can continue fighting for three days, being a uniformed force, we may be able to invoke the terms of the Geneva Convention. You really were that confident? Oh yes. I told my men repeatedly that we might hold out in Jacobs for months, that nothing could now stop a Republican victory. But you were wrong. You lasted but a week, I hear. It came as a great shock when Nurse O'Farrell arrived at the end of the week with Pierce's surrender order. She told me of their escape from the GPO and surrender in Moor Street. I asked where Pierce was, and she said he was already in British custody, Connolly also. I felt then that we might reject this order as our leader was in enemy hands when he had issued it. You were going to hold out? Yes. With Pierce and Connolly arrested, the chief command now devolved to me. I was not of a mind to surrender. We were still unbeatable if surrounded. Then priests arrived. They had been to see Connolly in Dublin Castle Infirmary, and they had a note from him supporting Pierce's surrender. I still insisted that no one else but me had the right to issue commands or enter into negotiations. So there was a stalemate. I felt that we had enough provisions and ammunition to hold out for weeks, and that if we did, we would certainly be invited to a peace conference. So what happened to change your mind? The fathers convinced me that it was hopeless. We had made our point. Time to save as many as possible. I sent word to General Lowe that I would meet him to discuss the situation. We met at the corner of St. Patrick's Park and agreed on an unconditional surrender. I returned to Jacobs to inform my soldiers. I was convinced that a surrender would save many lives, good lives for Ireland, who could rise again. How did your men react? No one wanted to surrender. Some of the boys shouted, they'll shoot us all. But the fathers were there to assure us that that wouldn't happen. How did you feel? Suddenly, enormous emotional and physical strain descended on me. I had been euphoric during, during the battle. But now, with the sudden collapse of my hopes for Ireland, I could hardly stand to lead my men to lay down our arms. So what happened when you came out? We assembled at the corner of Bride Street and were disarmed. Crowds had gathered to watch, and as we marched forward, some of the boys were encouraged by the older men to slip into the crowd to escape. It was chaotic. Many of us could have done so, but we felt honour-bound by the terms of the surrender to continue on. Because you knew that you'd receive a fair trial. You had fought as a gentleman. You seem a decent Englishman, but I knew we'd receive the retribution of the British Empire, which will now involve my death. Pierce once wrote that the English do not do anything for fun. When they blow a sepoy from a cannon, when they cause famine in one of their dependencies, they always have an ulterior motive. They don't do it for fun. I don't know how many of us they'll execute, but I do know they won't consider it hilarious. They'll kill us that no more risings will occur. And the trial itself, what are your views of it? It was a non-event. I refused to engage. Did you speak at all? I spoke when the show trial was over, and the verdict was obvious. Can you give a sense of what you said to them? Yes. The verdict was clear within ten minutes of the start. But you offered no defence. There was no point. 
I asked to speak at the end. I said I seek no clemency from you, nor do I repudiate my Republican principles. I said it would be unseemly for me to go to my doom without trying to express, however inadequately, my sense of the high honour in being one of those to die in this generation for the cause of Irish freedom. So you got your say, eh? There was a bit more, if I may. Yes, sir. We're still all right with that. I told the presiding judge, Blackadder, that the proclamation of the Irish Republic had been adduced in evidence against me as one of its signatories. You think it's already a dead and buried letter, I told him. But it lives, it lives, I shouted this as I was led away. I think you have finally found yourself, Mr. McDonough. Aye, tis my death I breathe with this breath. Have you had your priest? I have, and already I notice a more open appreciation of the subjugation of Ireland. Before our rising, it was not a topic for public discussion, but I've had two priests in to visit me, and both are quietly inflamed by our actions and the British reaction. The clergy not only provide us with the consolation of religion, but I sense that they will help with a growing popular perception of the rising by describing publicly our last hours in here. But have you seen your own spiritual needs? Oh yes. Uh, I had a visit from my sister. She's a nun. Sister Francesca prayed with me. See the rosary beads she hung around my neck? She placed them there as she left me. And family? I'm afraid not. I've written this letter to my wife as my wife can't visit. Perhaps it's better so. The soldiers tell me that the car sent to collect her in Renala had to turn back at Charlemagne Street due to sniper fire. <laughs> so the rising continues even as they slaughter us. So you won't get to speak to your wife one last time. That's a tragedy. <sighs> so be it. I raised a war against the British. I cannot now expect them to make any more than a minimal effort to facilitate me. We have a few minutes of recording left. This letter to your wife, would you like to share with us any of the thoughts you put down for her, if it's not too personal? First, I ask you to note that the only paper I had to hand was prison note paper. However, a prisoner must use whatever weapons are at hand to subvert his enemy. Note, I've inverted the note paper to place the embossed crown upside down at the bottom of the page. It must be hard to write at this time to your family. The one bitterness all this brings is a separation from my beloved wife, Muriel, and from my children, Donna and Barbara. Never was there a better wife, nor more, nor more adorable children. It breaks my heart to think that I shall never see them again. We have little time. Will you share the letter? Most of it is a personal to my wife and children, but I can share my political thoughts contained therein. I place them there for my children to understand why I died at the hands of the British. I explained that having heard the sentence of the court passed on me earlier, I state again that I was actuated by one motive only, the love of my country and the desire to make her a sovereign, independent state. That's all I wish to share with you. Thank you, Mr. McDonough. It has been a privilege to get to know you. I hope that this recording will allow you to speak to a wider audience after your death. One last request. If I may record onto your machine a few lines from one of my poems, seems appropriate. Yes, we still have space. It's not too long, is it? No, uh, a few short lines. No, that'll be fine. <clears throat> Life is a boon, and death as spirit and flesh are twain. The body is spoilt of death. The spirit lives on death-free. The body dies, and its wounds dies, and the mortal pain. 
the wounded spirit lives, wounded immortality. That was nice. I am consoled by it. Okay, I'm Charlotte Tannen. We have in studio to discuss this recording historian Wilmot Hines, who will assist us in understanding these events. Hello. Signora Maxwell Hogan, who owns these original recordings. And we have panellist Roger Basenby. Hello. And Hugh Coy. Hi. So, over to you, Hugh. What did you make of that? <laughs> well, I'm just amazed to be here listening to McDonough speak. To hear his thoughts from his own mouth. Incredible. To hear him recite some of his elegant poetry. Magnificent. I love the story McDonough recorded about taking Pierce to a music hall and Pierce's description of a female leg as the limb of an angel. (laughs) I hope we get more (laughs) anecdotes like that. It it helps to humanise these men. Yes, but we shouldn't get too reverential, as many feel that their actions were unnecessary and destructive. Well, some might, but uh, I can tell you there was no such talk among the emigrant Irish where I grew up. (laughs) To them, 1916 always ranked with the great battles of yore. (laughs) Oh, yes, of course, you. You grew up with the glorious tales of Ireland. Perhaps you might like to tell us a little bit about your views on Ireland so far. This is your first time to visit, I believe. Yes, my first time to come home. You've set yourself the task of understanding what it is to be Irish. So, how's that going? Well, I started from a very low base with my grandfather's mythic tales. Oh, like what? I grew up in a tenement in Liverpool with stories of my lost Celtic past. My grandfather told me many times about the McCoys who were kings. Mm. He wasn't sure in what part of Ireland our kingdom had been located, but it was a grand place. We had a large house in a great forest fitted with game and the rivers teemed with salmon. Then the English came with a letter from their monarch giving them ownership of our lands. (laughs) My people, weary, starving and in rags, then followed their stolen wealth over to England. And here we were, (laughs) that sort of thing. I had to conduct my own research to get a balance. (laughs) It's amazing how many Irish are comforted by being descended from kings. Indeed, Wilmot. (laughs) OK, I'm reminded in my ear to ask for text messages from listeners. Now, the number is 087 69 44 500. Well, we must consider Macdonough and we have his prediction that the wounded spirit lives on. Any comments? Macdonough was a gifted poet. Mm-hmm. Yeats reckoned him better than Pierce. Really? Donna was in Jacob's factory during their Isaac. Be interesting to realise just 
where each man was during that Easter week. Jacobs, wasn't that out in Tala? No, uh, <laughs> the original Jacobs factory was in Bishop Street, uh, oh off Anger Street. Oh. Uh, McDonough held out for a week, <laughs> no mean feat, which just a small company of men and women. I think it presented quite a military challenge to the British. It did. It was an extremely difficult site for the British army to attack. It was surrounded by narrow streets, which made it difficult to set up their guns. And it also had a high water tower, making it a great vantage point for shooters. So it was a good military location? Yes. McDonough also positioned volunteers on top of buildings in Camden Street, Anger Street and Wexford Street, making it more difficult for the British to target the factory. A serious position. And, of course, as McDonough in such a building told his men repeatedly that they might hold out in Jacobs for months. But they were not being attacked, merely contained by the British. He was reluctant to surrender. Yes, he was. Mm. We we believe he burst into tears while uttering the words surrender to his men. This marked the end of the rebellion around Bishop Street, with the Jacobs Battalion being one of the last to surrender. It was interesting to me, though, to hear McDonough say that he was only admitted to the military council because he was a teaching colleague of MacNeil. I mean, he, was, he said it was to improve communications with McNeil, who was proving difficult. Mm, that's true, and uh, actually argument, an argument persists even to this day as to the effects of McNeil's countermand on the East Horizon. What about McDonough's views on Redmond and McNeil? While he was sympathetic to McNeil, he was less generous to Redmond. Coincidentally, we have a text in from Patricia in Whitehall who asks, were the Irish Parliamentary Party opposed to violence and how significant was Redmond to events? Anyone like to take up on that? Well, if I might uh, uh, answer that. uh, uh, um, John Redmond, who succeeded Parnell, maintained that his party was a constitutional and non-violent movement and would manage uh, that would manage to achieve home rule by parliamentary means. Okay. By 1912, when he held the balance of power with a liberal, liberal government, Redmond had progressed the case of Irish self-government further than even Parnell. So an important parliamentary figure, yeah. Hold on. He wasn't quite the pacifist. Redmond's party was quite prepared to use force against its rivals and did so regularly using the sectarian ancient order of Ibernians to intimidate opponents. Who were this ancient order? Uh, uh, briefly, uh, it, it was organised by Joseph Devlin of Belfast right. in opposition to the Orange Order. Uh, you had to be Catholic and Irish to join. Right. Uh, the AOH, as they were known, was mm-hmm. the, it was the secret defence wing of the Irish Parliamentary Party. <laughs> but being staunchly Catholic, it was strongly opposed to circular ideologies such as those of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, and they would be totally opposed to Connolly's socialist ideas. So what was Redmond's political position then? As far as Redmond was concerned, the Home Rule movement was interested in promoting Irish nationality within the British Empire. Redmond strongly empathised with the British war effort. Mm. But he also genuinely believed that a strong show of Irish loyalty would copper fasten home rule. But Wilmot, when you say he was promoting Irish nationality within the British Empire, this suggests that he was not really a separatist. Well, he wasn't. He was never a separatist at heart, just as, as Parnell was at heart. Mm. It is thought that... The Canadian position was his inspiration, which would provide for an autonomous Ireland bound by ties of mutual benefit to the neighbouring... 
country. That wasn't much of an independence plan. Oh, well, <laughs> I think Redmond's early life partly explains this attitude. His father was a Wexford landlord. He was of the colonial class. And it's odd in spite of his favourable parliamentary position how spectacularly he failed. Well, his was a difficult position, uh, Roger. His usefulness to the party was mainly in the British parliamentary sphere. He remained isolated from popular Irish sentiment. His party's honouring of 98 and other events in the national calendar weakened the logic of his opposition to armed insurrection. So he looked destined to fail? He did, but Redmond cannot be entirely faulted. Firstly, he fell foul of the ultra-secretive IRB. Even in early 1916, he felt confident that the reduced Irish volunteers and even smaller Irish citizen army could not stage a credible insurrection. Secondly, Redmond was betrayed by British duplicity. Through Unionist pressure, the Home Rule Act of 1914 was modified, weakening its effect. Redmond accused the British government of treachery. And Wilmot, the outcome of all this was? Well, with the manoeuvrings of the British government and the Unionist Party, uh, while they dealt a decisive blow to the future fortunes of Home Rule movement, uh, they also destroyed Redmond's power and left him utterly demoralised and seriously ill. It simultaneously discredited the politics of consent and created the space for physical force alternatives. <laughs> if Tom Clark had been around, he would have said, I told you so. Senor Maxwell Hogan, perhaps I could bring you in here. As you said at our last session, that your great-grandparent Richard Maxwell also left a diary uh, detailing background information on these events. Mm, can you tell us maybe a little bit about the diary itself, please, and something on General Maxwell himself? Oh, General Maxwell, the man responsible for signing those death warrants. Mm. Well, my distant relative records that it was the end of Maxwell also. He was signing his own military death warrant. But, um, you know, when they met in uh, Dublin Castle, Sir John expressed his disgust at the poverty and squalor he saw in Dublin. Oh, the interesting scenario. Can you please go on? He also blamed the British government for allowing this man... Uh, what's his name, Carlson, to form this volunteer, the Ulster Volunteers. Yeah, and he, he was right, uh, because this prompted the forming of the Irish Volunteers, which led to the rising. He was not, I believe, an evil man, just a military man doing his duty as he saw it. And how did he sign his military death warrant? For someone who has such military status in Ireland and the Middle East, almost a pre-consul, it was a disaster, a disaster, a really bad. A clear demotion to be sent to BOC of Northern England for the reminder of his career. Ironically, the only ones who were pleased with him were the rebels, as he did exactly what they wanted. So, tell us, Senora, what are your plans for the original cylinders? I will make a present of them to your archiving body. Uh, I need to know where they are. Uh, would you... Please remind me again. Uh, yes, uh, the National Archive of Ireland is located, interestingly, on the site of Jacob's factory, the site of McDonough's stand. Thank you, Wilmot. And uh, how do I get there? Oh, don't worry, Senora. We'll arrange to get you there to hand over the cylinders. Gracias. Um, when do you propose to do this? I think maybe on Tuesday, just before I return home to Spain. Okay, now we've mentioned the pervading sense of British identity in 1900. Wilmot, how was this tackled by nationalists at the time? 
Uh, well, Charlotte, at the beginning of the 20th century, this overwhelming sense of Britishness enveloping the country worried nationalists. Mm-hmm. The 1916 Rising was a deliberate challenge to this process. Go on. Well, during this period, Irish people were led to believe that their grievances could all be met through the British Parliament. But parliamentary action was having little or no effect. We had um, Burke, O'Connell, mm-hmm. Parnell and then Redmond, all who, while, play, while rallying large numbers of their countrymen to their side, were always met with the same British response. Parliamentary intrigue with the threat of force not far away. And most worrying for the Irish idealists in 1900, colonial activities were becoming less evidence to most Irish citizens. A real moment of cultural crisis was upon Ireland, I understand. Mm, that's true, Hugh. Uh, there were only a few who felt these lacerations of lost identity. So they set about healing the unheeding nation. Indeed, and many disillusioned by the failure of parliamentary politics turned to culture. Turned to culture? Explain. Well, we had uh, Hyde and the Gaelic League in 1893. Uh-huh. Uh, we had Yeats and his goading poetry. Uh-huh. Uh, Wilde and Shaw with subversive literature. Uh, Lady Gregory and Maud Gone and the Insurgent Abbey Theatre. Uh-huh. We had Cusick and the Gaelic Athletic Association rivaling the garrison sports. And we had Pierce and St Indus and transformative education. Mm. So by 1900, all the main players were in place and their ideas and plans were advancing. Irish Britishness was being questioned. Is that it? Yes, all the ideas that are still playing out were in existence by 1910 at least. Uh, This was a culturally significant moment. A new mood of remembrance and rekindling was stirring across many fields. An almost obliterated Irish civilization was rediscovered on are encouraged to discover itself. Yeah, this is true. Uh, A Gaelic awareness was emerging. Uh, This was evident in the response to Queen Victoria's Jubilee celebrations in 1897. Irish nationalists, who had been quite passive during the Jubilee celebrations ten years earlier, rejected such ceremony in Dublin. Leading this were Maud Gawne, W.B. Yeats and James Connolly. Mm. They planned their own commemoration of the 1798 rebellion. Mm, As you said earlier, a significant moment. Yes, the transformative impact of Hyde and Yeats should not be underestimated. They fought against deeply embedded values due to seven centuries of colonialism. The English mind was everywhere. Yeah, but equally the importance of the 1916 rebels should not be undervalued. They launched a serious attack right at the heart of the British Empire. The Irish mind was emerging. Right, well, we're getting plenty of texts and we'll get to as many of them as possible. We have uh, Dave in Rohini has asked for more information on the proclamation itself. What does it say to us today? The proclamation addressed us as citizens. But we are now described as clients, customers and consumers. Uh, What does that even mean? It means that we need a version of ourselves closer to that of the proclamation. Hugh, the social and radical aspects of the proclamation have been widely exaggerated. It it was mostly about separation by force from Britain. There's hardly any mention of equal rights and and no mention of social or cultural programmes. It would not resonate very well with us today. Moving on, Laura in Clontarf texts us to explain the blood sacrifice concept. 
Anyone like to take that? Well, if I may, uh, Charlotte, Mm -hmm. (laughs) blood sacrifice is now part of the mythology of the rising, but maybe maybe not initially. How so? Well, Pierce wanted to do it. The others were ready to do it. Mm -hmm. For Pierce, the idea that had real appeal. His revolutionary ideology was steeped in such notions derived from Celtic myths and religious writings. And for him, Christ and, and, and Ku Cullen were his inspirations. Oh, I see. And, and was he alone in this? Uh, it's hard to say. Blood sacrifice wasn't a widespread notion among the proclamation signatories. Uh, most were more fatalistic about their chances. They might or might not survive. All these, when defeated, sought to negotiate with Britain where they would be executed, but their followers allowed to go free. And that makes more sense. In practice, uh, their blood sacrifice was an improvised strategy. It was designed not to be a sacrificial redemption, but as a further tactical measure to awaken the dormant national spirit. They were still fighting the enemy, even as they stood before the firing squad. Mm, That's true. So how did the idea of blood sacrifice become such a strong part of the rising story? Well, I think it was given validity by the final letters written by those about to be executed. In writing to loved ones before, before being executed, they all expressed the hope that their deaths would be included among previous examples of blood sacrifice, of blood sacrifice in the name of Irish freedom. And have you an example of what one of them said? Yes, indeed. Mm. Uh, McDonough wrote of his pride in the knowledge that his blood would, and here's, I quote directly, right. his blood would be due the sacred soil of Ireland. Oh. And McDermott wrote... Again, I quote, mm-hmm. our blood will rebaptize and reinvigorate the old land. This is now an integral part of the narrative. Gosh. Could that have been that ego was at play? Well, if there was ego, it came into play with the letters at the end of the process and not at the beginning. Later, popular imagination, later, uh, sorry, what I was going to say was that later, popular imagination, perhaps to salvage the rising, mm-hmm. suggested that the leaders of the rising actually planned the event as a blood sacrifice rather than a coup d'etat. Whatever the reason, the notion of the Easter rising as a blood sacrifice has now entered the popular imagination. Right. OK, thank you. Anyway, uh, let's go back to our text. We have Chris in our and he asks, why was it called the Sinn Féin rising and asks about early Sinn Féin? Wilmot, can you answer that maybe for us? Yes, a good, thank que- you. Yes, a good question. <laughs> Uh, most historians opt for November uh, 1905 as the founding date for the Sinn Féin uh, movement because it was on this date that Arthur Griffith first presented his Sinn Féin policy. Ah. And so how involved would you say Sinn Féin were in this rising? Sinn Féin as such were not involved in the rising despite being blamed by the British government for it. Uh, Griffith wasn't involved in the secret plans. Mm-hmm. Uh, the leaders of the rising, many of whom were not in Sinn Féin, we're looking for more than the Griffith proposal of a separation strong, uh, stronger than home rule under a dual monarchy. What okay. was that about dual monarchy, though? I uh, I always thought that Sinn Féin was a Republican party. Oh, Griffith, yeah. through the pages of the United Irishman, elaborated on his ideas for separatism. And these included the idea of dual monarchy. What is it? 
this dual monarchy. Well, this, of course, and two separate kingdoms are ruled by the same monarch. I think he was modelling it on the Austria-Hungarian dual monarchy that it existed at the time with uh, Charles I in this role. Well, that seems like even less separation than Redmond's proposals. Uh, don't get too carried away with the notion. I don't believe that Griffith mm. was actually a monarchist. He advocated such an approach as a way to handle Anglo-Irish relationships. I hope so. You see, he was more complex than Mm -hmm. a mere monarchist. He sought to combine elements of Parnellism with the traditional separatist approach. He rejected socialism, yet worked closely with Connolly, who espoused this. So where did he stand? Good question. Well, yes, be clear... (laughs) Everybody who was unhappy with the situation was searching for a different model of ownership and control. Griffith knew that most Irish people were not Republicans and were more familiar with the idea of monarchy. He, like Redmond, didn't want to go too far, while Pierce, Clark and Conley were in the GPO because they wanted far more. So, you can see, it definitely wasn't a Sinn Féin rising. And so how did Sinn Féin become so dominant after the rising? Well, rising rising survivors returning from imprisonment joined Sinn Féin in great numbers, uh, radicalised his programme and took control of its leadership. At the 1970 Nordesh, the party committed itself for the first time to the establishment of an Irish Republic. No mention now of dual monarchy. So their position had shifted. Yes. Precipitants. Sorry, I meant to say participants. (laughs) So Sinn Féin has a general attitude of mind. I think that the 1916 rising and execution saw the beginning of a far-reaching transformation of nationalist attitudes in Ireland. Like what, Hugh? Well... Many who'd accepted the argument that Home Rule was the limit of what was practically attainable now began to think that full separation was not an entirely wild dream. The problem, from a British perspective, is that we Irish keep moving the goalposts. How do you mean? The poor English profess themselves continually puzzled by the inconsistency of their Irish subjects. They'd help with endless versions of the Irish question at Westminster. Like willful children, the Irish kept introducing new questions just as an answer to the previous question was in sight. Such as examples? Well, we asked for a repeal of the Act of Union, then Catholic emancipation, solve the famine, restore the Gaelic language, give us home rule. No, we want more. We want full separation. See what I mean? We just wanted human rights. Yes, but decent English people reading their newspapers about such behaviour could justly ask, why can't the Irish be more particularly English? (laughs) They understood when their government, having tried conciliation, must turn to coercion. Victorian England understood that a naughty child deserves the rod. OK. We'll go to a text from Ciarán in Kilmainham asking us to elaborate on the plantation of Ulster and its impact on the home rule debate. Wilmot, would you like to take this? Yes, well, oh. <laughs> this is a big question and right. it's really going back, but it does. it is <laughs> part of the background. Okay. Well, uh, the plantation generally refers to an influx of settlers from England 
and the Scottish lowlands during the Tudor conquests. Uh, these plantations were based on mass conf- confiscation of land from the native Gaelic clans. <laughs> Perhaps the Mercoys, you <laughs> possibly. <laughs> anyway, the plantations changed the character of Ireland by creating large communities with a British and Protestant identity. So unwittingly, the British created this modern dilemma for themselves. <laughs> Nothing unwitting witting about it. They deliberately set out to change the identity of Ulster. Prior to its conquest in the war of in the wars of the 1590s, uh, Ulster was the most Gaelic part of Ireland and the only province that was completely outside of English control. So it was a deliberate policy of displacement. Oh yes. <laughs> the plantation of Ulster was deliberately achieved by ensuring that all the land would be confiscated and then redistributed to create concentrations of British settlers around new towns, garrisons and uh, Protestant churches. Maybe you'd explain to the listeners what this meant in practice, Wilmot, would you? Uh, Well, (laughs) the new landowners were explicitly banned from taking Irish tenants and had to import them from England and Scotland. Moreover, the planters were also barred from selling their lands back to any Irishman. So that's how modern Ulster was born. Any further thoughts on the McDonough interviews? Well, if I might indulge myself here, McDonough finished his interview with a section of one of his own poems that meant something to him at that moment. Perhaps this week we could remember him with a section of another of his poems. That would be nice. Um, Can you recall one? Yes. This is from his poem, At the End. (coughs) Excuse me. The songs that I sing should have told you an Easter story of a long sweet spring with its gold and its feasts and its glory. How moving. Very moving. Well, we must leave it there. Next, we'll hear the recorded interview with Tom Clark. Please tune in tomorrow and hear the voice and views of one of the driving forces of the Easter Rising. Until then... Slán for now. You have listened to a special programme dedicated to the life and death of Thomas McDonough. We would like to thank Signora Maxwell Hogan for allowing us to digitally enhance the original Edison recordings from the period. We'd also like to thank our own Charlotte Tannen for hosting the panel discussions. And we'd like to thank her studio guests Hugh Coy, Roger Brazenby and Wilmot Hines. Tomorrow at the same time we'll broadcast the voice of Tom Clark. Until then, salon.
This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.